this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Tom, you know what I like to say about this podcast? Comfort and chaos. We give our listeners comfort. Little do they know about the chaos. Kevin, in this episode, we got that Southern comfort and a whole big old dollop of chaos. This is Pack Your Knives. I'm Kevin Arnovitz. I'm Tom Haberstroh. And Tom, we will be joined shortly by Season 15 Top Chef and Top Chef Restaurant War winner Joe Flam. But first, huge week on Top Chef. Everybody, let's just face it, Restaurant Wars is the jewel of any Top Chef season. Big upset this week. Uh, I think you and I have some competing thoughts about the general uh, the, the general episode and, and, and how it how it fared, but uh, Kevin Gillespie going home, Gregory winning as executive chef of his vision of restaurant. Early thoughts, Tom. Yeah, this one, uh, I so much going on in this episode. Uh, I, I love the draft. I loved what he did. Gregory did in his draft. It's such competing, diametric opposite 
strategies here by Gregory and uh, and and Kevin in this episode, which I think is great fodder for this conversation we're going to have with Joe Flam uh, and the two of us. But I I I gotta say, Kevin. The star of this episode may not have been Gregory. It might have been your boy, Brian Malarkey, who just wowed the socks off of everybody in the, at the front of the house. And he is coming in strong on your team with the second most points out of the last three weeks. Brian Malarkey, down from the dumps, rises again and is becoming a real player in Top Chef All-Stars. All right, so a couple of thoughts as they pick teams. Now, clearly, Malarkey was a great acquisition. He was the first pick of Gregory. Uh, however, uh, at the time, one could argue, you know he's not going to go first or even second to Kevin. Why not wait, steal him later in the draft? He's going to drop down your board, go with Melissa. But look, as it turned out, it did not matter. A of all-star team of Kevin, Melissa, Voltaggio, Oof. and Karen lost to Gregory. And I think those that we might have ranked in the bottom three of the remaining eight in uh, Leanne, Stephanie, and Malarkey. I mean, this looked like – I mean, I, a morning line, probably one to three <laughs> favorite, goes down uh, for all kinds of reasons. I, I do want to kind of debate with you because I think – you absolutely your, – I think your comment to me over text was, I want to marry this episode. Uh, I had some slightly different thoughts, though I still liked it because, look, there's no way to screw up a restaurant war. But but give me yeah. why you thought this was – tell me your, 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 your proposal in marriage to this episode is based on what? Because the strategy that Gregory showed, the, gra- the, the fact that he went for fit, not for best talent available – is kind of what Restaurant Wars is all about, is you have to know who's going to be the best at front of house, who's going to be my best teammates, uh, my best sous chefs. And I feel like Gregory not only did that, but I think diametrically opposite to what Kevin's strategy was, he really simplified his menu. And he really thought about his menu in terms of what can I do? What can my uh, sous chefs and the front of house pull off? And it seemed like he went for um, sim- not simple in terms of not sophisticated, but four dishes that he knows he can nail and the rest can nail and then not worry about 15 different dishes that Kevin came or 12 it was but I just thought it was such amazing brilliant strategy by Gregory and it's not that Kevin really screwed up and fell on his face here it's just we got two diametric opposite strategies from Gregory such complete opposite what Kevin was doing was getting the best talent available Gregory didn't go there in the NBA we always have this debate whether you draft for fit whether he fits for my team Based on who is really good at my position. So the thing that I come back to is Luka Doncic, who was, you know, maybe he was the EuroLeague MVP at 18 years old. He was probably by far the the number one talent. But when you compare him to a Devin Booker or a De'Aaron Fox, you might not want to draft that guy. So instead of going for best talent available, teams passed up on Luka Doncic and said, I want best fit. And what ended up happening is in this episode, Gregory went for best 
fit because he didn't have to worry about any any sort of positions that might have already been incumbent on his team. He just decided, I know Brian Malarkey is going to kill it at front of house, and I know I work really well with Stephanie, and Leanne, I think, will be able to take orders in terms of trying to uh, solidify these dishes. So I really think in this episode, and we'll talk about it with Joe, Joe, but I think we kind of saw the four strategies at play. Um, you had Kevin who went big talent and big dishes, and then you had Gregory go with best fit and also more simple, doable dishes. Yeah, my issue is not so much with how strategy was played. My my issue is I thought this was one of the least entertaining Restaurant War episodes the show has produced and, and for the following reasons, and I alluded to it a little bit last week. I, I think so much of the tension that makes Restaurant Wars compelling comes from the concept building process, that that moment when the teams are picked, everyone goes to their neutral corners, it's a notepad out, and the four chefs start debating, presenting – uh, they're, they're competing, or, or for that matter, they're, they're corresponding ideas. You get the battle of egos. You get the gamesmanship within the team dynamic. I'm reminded of season 15, Joe Flam's season, where Chef Chris uh, just sort of says, hey, Claudette, you want to be exec chef? Kind of sandbagging her. I thought that was an interesting decision. But by having the two restaurant concepts set in advance, we lost – so much of that. Instead of having four people each with a sense of ownership and a, and a push-pull and, and everyone sort of uh, in parity owning a little piece of the enterprise, there was one autocrat on each team. This was basically a two-person challenge. This was a finale disguised as Restaurant Wars. This was a finale. We have the two finalists, and hey, they get three chefs from the remaining pool to kind of help them out. And it just, to me, you know, and as much as Kevin or anybody else say, well, I want to make sure everyone puts their little handprint or contribution. To me, this was a boring Restaurant Wars episode relative to other Restaurant Wars. It's still great television because Top Chef is amazing and there's no such thing as a bad Restaurant War. But I was thoroughly disappointed. My my suspicions from last week when we saw this pitch, come now all of a sudden we're coming in and, and so much – of the interpersonal dynamics of a restaurant war episode was to me lost Uh, to say nothing of the fact that I don't want to watch a two person game. I want to watch an eight person game. So I would say to restaurant wars, I would say to top chef rather like you got a good thing. I mean, you can jazz it up a little, you know, last year they tried, Oh, we'll do three restaurants this year. We'll basically just preordain the restaurant, you know, by the way, essentially, by rewarding the person who was most capable by giving them a 50% chance of going home. Because there was no way on earth, Tom, anybody was going to go home other than the executive chefs when you consider that the restaurant was pre-designed by the uh, the two chefs coming into the week. You know, Melissa was completely lost in this episode. I want to watch Melissa kind of in action. Basically, I got her kind of – she got intentionally walked three times. Congratulations. That was no fun. You know, I'm watching, you know, I mean, yeah, she cooked. Congratulations. I got to watch Melissa cook potatoes in a in a in a moose canapé. This was a poor Restaurant Wars episode. I will die on this hill. Top Chef needs to don't too clever by half. Restaurant Wars is intrinsically brilliant. Two teams of four. Each of you can do a restaurant. If you want to do three courses times three, that's fine. You want to do a, you're going to do a tasting menu of six. That's fine. I don't care how you structure it. Don't mess with a good thing. You know what? It's time to bring in Joe Flam. 
Yes, it is. I, w- I, I want to hear what piece. he has to say. He's he's been watching this season. He is uh, he's someone who uh, won Top Chef, as you said at the top. Top Chef fifteen Colorado also won Restaurant Wars, and they quickly went down to Last Chance Kitchen. Got kicked off for a quick fire, but Joe Flam, I can't wait to have him on the show and explaining his perspective on this. And and by the way, before we get to him, uh, you had 15 points this week. You had Brian Malarkey and Stephanie Seymour. I had 20. The lead is extended. (laughs) Kevin, why don't you give him a proper intro? We are now joined on Pack Your Knives by Top Chef Season 15 winner and also Top Chef Season 15 Restaurant Wars winner, Chicago's own, Joe Flam. Joe, it is a sincere pleasure. So good to be back with you guys. <laughs> hey, we uh, we have a huge Restaurant Wars episode to break down. Kevin just had an epic rant about why he thinks Restaurant Wars was just fine when it was four chefs trying to figure out who's going to be the executive chef, the front of the house, and then the two sous chefs without having this preordained Kevin Gillespie gets to fall on his sword. One of the two executive chefs are going to uh, get eliminated. Kevin felt that this was uh, a little bit low on the tension, on the drama, and he felt that this wasn't the strongest yeah. of the restaurant wars. I come in on the other side. Yeah. I say we get a lot of that. We get a lot of the drama. We get a lot of the uh, hey, this is your role. Uh, most of the people that do restaurant wars, I don't think it's always – so nice. Uh, like I think in a lot of times in restaurant wars, the, the roles are selected, but no one's happy with them. Much in the same way this episode, I don't think they were happy with their roles. I think a lot of the same juice that you get in restaurant wars was there in this one. But um, enough about me and Kevin's thoughts. Big picture, Joe, what did you think of this episode? I can. So I was listening to you guys from last week and I really actually – I did like Kevin's points to that um, – yeah, you miss that drama of like, well, who's in charge? And they have to agree on the concept and they have to agree on decor. And that takes forever, like in real time. And that was like, you know, like being in the house when that was happening, even cameras not on, like people fighting about it, like, you know, arguing about it. And that was just like, I mean, pure gold. Um, and it makes it way harder, I think, um, from having gone through it. But the part where it's like you guys didn't like where I think Kevin, you said it was like a disadvantage, you know, your, your prize for winning was that you're one of the two people who consistently get eliminated for restaurant wars, right? You're either the executive chef or front of the house, wherever you put yourself um, because it's your concept. But I would say you're getting the chance to have the ball in your hands. You're, you're giving yourself, if you win, you have the opportunity to take the last shot. And I think if you're really a competitor, if you're really going into this, that's what you want. You know what I mean? You want, you know, where the cards are down, you want it in your control. You're not resting on someone else. You're not getting worried about getting stuck in front of the house for somebody else's service or restaurant that might be a disaster and not your fault. So, I mean, in that regard, I kind of like the pitch because it's like, okay, like, I'm going to pitch and I'm going to go and we're going to try to run my restaurant. Yeah. Um, I would do a pitch as its own standalone challenge. I think that's great. I was I was rewatching your restaurant wars and uh-huh. one of the things that struck me is let's take the losing team there. 
there was literally a moment where any of those four chefs could have gone home. Joe Mustache was 0 for 3 on his dishes. He didn't execute one of them correctly. Claudette was executive chef. Um, Fatima, oh, Fatima, may, may, one of my all-time favorites. Um, but, but, you know, she was she had trouble with the front of the house and, and only had one dish that didn't really work. And then Chris was sort of the captain. So I miss that drama because the concept building, as you say, the, the who's going to take charge, who's, you know, I thought it was kind of interesting. Chris clearly sandbagged Claudette in that, in that, in that episode. Uh, and it seemed like uh, nobody else really had a problem with it. But it felt like I was watching eight different narratives everyone had their thing you were doing the front of the house but even adrian you know her fish and the it, it, it was a full episode anyone could have gone home and uh-huh. the concept building the contrast was great watching them sort of fumble over their common cause or whatever it was called common commonplace commonplace thank you versus but, but commonplace no disrespect joe but i think one of those it's one of those examples of how when you have four really smart chefs coming together to come up with one concept, it kind of gets leveled a little bit. And so the focus becomes just kind of uh, universal. Whereas on this one, you know that we're going to do Haitian. You know we're going to do Southern comfort food. And I, maybe maybe that, that focus is actually good because in many instances like last year when we went to Restaurant Wars, it had – I don't know – Three ideas, but they weren't sort of unified. It was just kind of like, blah. Right. You know, it's the Cleveland Browns versus the Patriots. It's like, you know, you get a bunch of talent on this one team, but it's like kind of a shit show and nobody to wrangle it in versus like this season where it's like there's one clear vision and it's like, hey, I won. So everybody has to get on board for, you know, my Haitian concept or my uh, country captain concept, you know, Um and I think, you know, to, to Kevin's point, it, you, you go to that judge's table and you see Brian and Melissa sitting there and they're just kind of like, yeah, whatever. Like, we know we're not going home. <laughs> so in, in Top Chef history, courtesy of um, TopChefStats.com, Lynn Fisher does an amazing job. So let's get the stats. You mentioned this uh, a few seconds ago, Joe, Joe, about if you're the executive chef or front of house, you're either going to go win, win or go home. So here are the actual stats. Um, eliminated roles. In Restaurant Wars history, seven for the executive chef, six for the front of house, and only five for the two line cooks. So we already know, even though Voltaggio and Melissa were line cooks, that they're not going to get eliminated. That's true in every Restaurant Wars. It's very hard to be a line cook and get eliminated. There's two line cooks for every Restaurant Wars, every team, and yet they still have the fewest eliminations. Now, on the other side, winning roles. Executive chef, five times. Front of house, five times. Line cook, five times. Even though there's two line cooks for every team, it only ties in terms of winning uh, restaurant wars. So what what that tells me is that it's just more of the same, is that line cooks are just kind of line cooks. Right. And I think it's – you know, it's a matter of opinion of going into restaurant wars where it's like where you feel strong. Like going into restaurant wars, I was like, I want to be the chef for the front of the house because I feel like I can do really well at those. I think this is a time for me to shine and time for me to do really well. Um, it's also like my favorite competition on the show. So it was like a big goal for me rolling into the season was like, I got to make it to restaurant wars. I got to make it there. Like I want to experience that, see what it's really like. Um, so that was, you know, huge for me. And I think for a lot of people, but I think also when you have a season of all stars with people who have all been there before, they've all done this before they've been to restaurant wars before they know what it's like. So it's not like new and exciting for them. 
like for us, it was brand new. It was exciting. None of us knew quite what it was going to be like. Like all these people have done it before. And that's why I was so surprised to see, you know, Karen, who's an incredible chef, um, going to the front of the house and struggle so much um, for Country Captain. Because it's like you guys know what to expect. You know how the room's going to get seated. You know they're going to overload you. You know you have to, like, what you have to focus on and what you have to do to be successful in it. So that was, you know, was was really surprising to me. I thought we were going to see a lot more um, ease of service from this restaurant wars just with yeah. the, the, you know, the level of, of veteranship on there. Kevin, should we just start the episode, go with the draft? Yeah, I mean, the draft was interesting. We were talking about, uh, you know, Tom is, is said that, you know, Greg's choice of malarkey was just a stroke of brilliance and it, and it definitely paid off. I, I suggested the game theory, like he could have, he could have <laughs> gotten malarkey with the third pick. He could have <laughs> also gotten Melissa and malarkey. I mean, as it turned out, it didn't matter. And, and I would even argue that there's something about the pliability and, and chill of, of a chef like Chef Stephanie, who clearly was an asset, um, takes mm-hmm. direction, doesn't feel the need uh, to, 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 you know, put her own personal signature on anything, was there, understood the contours of the challenge. It's like, I'm going to help this guy achieve his vision. Uh, what did you think of the draft? I mean, how would you – let's put it this way. You've got your concept. You've got those same six chefs. Uh, who do you go to first and second? Um, I think for me, who I would have gone to, and, and granted, I have a very different skill set than Greg. So I think I would have drafted different because I know going into it that if I needed to take front of the house, I could. So I think my first pick would have been Melissa just for what I was doing. Um, so she would probably be up there. My team probably would have looked um, a little, my team would have looked more like Kevin's, except with me running more of a front of the house role. Mm-hmm. You, would, you would want to do front of house again. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I've never seen any of them do it. But I've seen them all cook, and I know they all can cook. And you got to know, you know, but I think it's Greg was smart enough to know, like, I don't want to do the front of the house thing. That's not my strong point. That's not me. And this is my, if that's your biggest weakness, if that's your biggest need, you know, it's not necessarily best player available. It's like, what's our greatest need first? And we got to fill that hole, right? And I think that's what Greg did with the draft and why that was really smart. And Malarkey, it's like. Have you, have you worked with him before? No. No, no, no. I don't. I don't know him on a personal level at all. Um, you haven't been to his eight thousand restaurants he's opened in the past two days. He is. I read that he is worth a hundred and one million dollars. Stop you, it! No, stop it! No, are you flam? Just blew my mind. A hundred and one. Like <laughs> um, a joke. Like why not? He can buy. He can buy the show. He can. He can produce his own Top Chef and just sell it. I mean, well, okay. This all right, and then this. Okay, and this is, I think, from a person who was on the show perspective versus fan perspective, is like, you know, Malarkey's there for a reason. He's not. He doesn't give a shit if he wins. You know what I mean? What's two hundred and fifty grand to a guy who's worth one hundred one million? Like, you know, does he get open more restaurants? He wants to be on more TV. Like, that's why he's on the show. You know what I mean? He's he's Richard Blazing right now. It's like getting in front of the cameras and trying to be on shows. That's cool. That's great. But it's not, you know, it, it's just not the same as like watching like a guy like Eric, who is 
up and coming. You know, he's just opening his first round. You feel like Nini and Eric are like the quintessential top chef chefs. They need this. You're not, they need this. You know what? They'll be all right. They'll be fine. They're great chefs. They're talented people. Um, you know, they work hard, but it's like, this is a huge, this is a, a career life changer for that. This is for more malarkey and some other people. And there's always people like this on every season. I think, you know, for us, for our season, it's very much, you know, like, like Bruce of like, Bruce is trying to get to that level where you're a personality outside of the kitchen and you're trying to make your, your career transpire from a, or, you know, transfer from a chef into kitchen to a chef personality. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I'm still just picking my job off the floor, Kevin. It's like, and he's going to pitch a show called that's malarkey. Um, it's, right. it's going to be great. Um, it's interesting. What do we think? You know, Stephanie's an interesting chef on the show because the personal chefs, I mean, obviously uh-huh. there are limitations in the sense that, you know, you, you, you just have a different skill set, uh, or maybe you don't have certain skills through no fault of your own, just by the virtue of experience. Like, what is she, what would we think that a, a personal chef, I mean, just a good life experience, does she want to move into a restaurant? I mean, obviously you have no way of knowing you don't, you don't know her personally. But yeah. And, and like, that's the thing. It depends. It's like, because like Adrian was a personal chef when mm-hmm. she went on, you know, top chef, but it's like, there's different, you know, a lot of personal chefs get there in different ways. You know, I worked for Art Smith, who is a really, really famous personal chef because he was Oprah's personal chef. Um, and he arrived there just by, he was in college and got a job at the governor's mansion in Florida and became, you know, a personal chef for him and just went along with the personal chef train all along. Whereas, Stephanie, I don't know her background, but I'm assuming she came from restaurants. Like Adrian came from restaurants. She worked at a three Michelin star restaurant and then went and worked for Marcus Samuelson. You know, her pedigree was ridiculous. And then she went into private chefing. Um, Stephanie probably has a similar one. You know, it's not that she's never worked in restaurants. She just doesn't work in restaurants right now. So it's not that she doesn't have that skill set necessarily. And I think it's different for different people. You know, Adrian flirted a ton with opening her own restaurant after the season. I think she still goes back and forth on it, but she's doing the private chef thing right now because it's, it's a really good job and it's, you know, a lot provides them for a lot of flexibility and they just, they like it. Yeah. Um, going back to the episode, I mean, so I, I mean, I think Kevin's at least to the, to the layman, the, the error was very clear, right? Like too many things. I don't subscribe to this go big or go home part. I mean, going big in and of itself, I don't think is a virtue. I think it's to go, you know, big is not a volume play. Big is an idea play. I mean, are we correct that you take off a few here? Take, don't go with a canopy, maybe go with a beautiful cornbread to start. Um, right. well, you don't need like, the mushrooms yet. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you thought. It's what you can execute. Yes. And like, that's always my biggest thing. Like, you know, from doing events to doing the show or whatever, it's like, if you, it doesn't matter if you can't execute it. And that's, that's the golden rule of everything on Top Chef is like, we did our restaurant wars. They were kind of like, oh, well, it's kind of, you know, a little bit more like we had to really work a concept because we're like, you know, me, it was me, Bruce, Carrie and Adrian. That's a great team. Me and Bruce, you know, it was an awesome team. That's a great team. Me and Bruce are like, yeah, well, you know, if it was just me and him, we'd do an Italian concept, but that doesn't work with all of us. And Carrie kind of cooks Italian food, but she cooks more like American food. And, you know, Adrian is just a really, really talented cook who can do a lot of things. So that's kind of how we ended up with this new American restaurant is we're like, this is something that we can execute on a really high level. And it's not about our, this isn't our dream restaurant, you know, our restaurant. Uh, what was it called? Conifer. Mm-hmm. 
none of us wanted to open conifer none of us are ever going to open conifer <laughs> but it was like this is what we knew we could do and do well to execute for the challenge you know it's not like they were going to we had to sign the lease for 10 years when we opened it so i think that was kind of the other thing too about like when these people were pitching ideas they weren't just like pitching their best restaurant wars idea they were pitching the restaurant they wanted to open good point right. well, and so, which, is, which is totally different right yeah because it seemed to me like watching the episode kevin wanted to pay homage to a loved one and i think that's great he wanted to approximate an experience and i think that's great gregory wanted to win restaurant wars right and then i think that was sort of there was a certain yes it was absolutely the, the, i mean gregory wants to open a haitian restaurant but there was a pragmatism he kind of boiled it down to its essence, captured the spirit of the restaurant without saying this is what it's going to look like on day one, where I felt like Kevin, who, by the way, I love Kevin's restaurant. I'm from Atlanta. Gun Show is one of my absolute favorite places. Um, but you're right. Like it seemed like th- th- this is exactly what he wants to do in a uh, in a, in a period of, of six months versus Greg Gregory had the pragmatic version of his restaurant. Kevin had the romantic version of his restaurant. Right. Right. And I think, you know, yeah, Greg was very much like here. This is like a, a sliver of what my restaurant's going to be. This is the idea of it. This is a taste of it. Um, or Kevin tried to roll out, you know, the, the whole thing a lot on it. And I think the other really smart thing Greg did was like Greg just was back there and cook. He didn't try to run service. He didn't run from the house. He just, you know, he managed kind of, you know, the, the brand of the food. It's like, this is what things are supposed to look like. This is what everything's supposed to taste like. And he just did that. He didn't sit there and try to expo. And it's like, and watching Kevin expo, you know, like he was just getting killed on that board. So he wasn't really paying enough attention to the food and probably wasn't tasting enough stuff where it's like, you know, if you would have slid, you know, somebody else out there to expo and then him just back there cooking and tasting, like, I feel like it probably would have been more successful for him. Right, Melissa is so efficient. She could probably expode. I mean, I, I've never seen a more efficient chef. I would have, yeah. I would have probably put. I mean, Voltaggio. if it was me, I would have put Voltaggio on Expo. You know, Melissa hasn't been in restaurants for a while, but you know she's a super good, driven cook. So it's like yeah. you know she's just going to bring prep. You know she's way precise. That she's really good at seasoning. So it's like I would have had her if it was you know if I was Kevin, I would have been like, all right, me and Melissa are going to be back here. You know, Voltaggio's running Expo. You know, if Karen on the floor, or I would have had Karen run Expo and probably would have thrown, you know, Botaggio on the floor, really, um, and, and, and going about it that way. You know, he, he made Kevin, Kevin made Voltaggio his first pick, but then threw him aside, you know, and if you, if you're going to get Voltaggio, I feel like you want to give him, you know, either an entree or a dessert or something that he can really dive headfirst into. And so I think, you know, what's fascinating about this is that, According to TopChefStats.com, three of the 13 teams who chose first won Restaurant Wars. It is not a good thing to pick first on Restaurant Wars. And I, I want to ask both of you, you know, speaking about Voltaggio, is why do you think that is? Is that just random or do you think there's maybe a bias? No. I don't think it's random at all. So if you have the first pick in Restaurant Wars, why, do you, why, does that, why is that kind of a death sentence? And I would like to, and I would also, my curious would be what that is when you get first pick on the finale too for your team. Because it's like, at least for us, it was like Adrian had first had first pick. And 
you get a second to think as second pick. You know, everything's happening so fast. They're like, okay, cool. We did just did this. Boom, boom, boom. And now, you know, Tom, you have first pick. Go. Brian Voltaggio, he's a great chef. I'll pick him. You yes. know what I mean? And yep. like, if you're the second person, maybe it's 45 seconds, but it's like, you can take a beat and be like, okay, what do I need? Not just like, I need to say words out of my mouth because there's a room full of cameras, cameras and people, and people staring, staring at me. At me. Really, 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 really want me to, want me to, talk, me to right talk right now. Yeah. So we've got um, Voltaggio goes first, then Greg goes with Malarkey, then Kevin picks Melissa. I don't have any problem with that from a talent perspective. Yeah. Then then uh, Gregory goes Leanne, Kevin goes Karen, and then last pick, Stephanie, uh, goes to Gregory's team, which is interesting because Gregory and Stephanie have been pals the entire season. And so maybe Gregory knew that, like, you know what? Uh, we're going to work great together. And, and so that – right off the bat, I, I mean, the talent level is crazy. Someone asked on Twitter, was this – 2011 Mavericks versus Heat. And I just got a big chuckle out of that because it makes a lot of sense. The comp is you got Dirk Nowitzki and a bunch of role players past their prime. And then you got three all-time Hall of Famers on the other side. And they just – they it wasn't a good fit that year. Right. And it's like that's one of those things. It's like it's about the best team. Not the most talent, but it's about the best team. And that runs the best restaurant. you know. And I think that's kind of – kind of what happened and having the right people in place. And it's, you know, um, so it, it's tough. And I think like part of that call though, is a big part of it is just like, you're put on the spot and they're like, Hey, who do you pick right now? Go. Yeah. So who would have been your exec chef if you were going to do the front of the house from the group of six? Um, I, ooh. did you say Melissa? You said, was did it you, Melissa? Uh, you might've already answered this. I, I don't know if we ever got, it. I would have probably went with, I mean, for me, like Brian or, or Melissa, um, just for like my type of food that I cook, they would make the most sense for me. I know they both know a lot about making pasta. I would have a pasta on the menu. So it's, you know, that would probably be where mm-hmm. I tilt towards, um, uh, as far as like, you know, where I was going. And I think, you know, one of the things it's like, you don't know how much they know about it each other as cooks and like how much time they spend in the house. So it's like, like that salt cod pastry she made looked really like that looked like a pretty difficult dish to execute. And I know it looked really simple, but just from like messing with food and doughs and stuff, it's like, you know, looking like an empanada type dough, like those doughs are super tricky for something you've never made before. So, you know, there's also, it's like Greg can know things we don't and be like, you know what? I know she actually has a lot of, you know, pastry or dough or whatever experience. And like, that's what I'm going to need. And I think that's, you know, a little bit of the behind the scenes that you don't see where it's like the people who pick well do that. And then you saw Steph take over for Leanne. That seemed like a fucking disaster, Leanne. <laughs> Expediter from hell. Oh my God. There's a lot of really good chefs who are really terrible expediters who, you know, like they just don't, you know, I worked for Tony Montuano. Famous James Beard Award winner, Michelin starred chef, maybe arguably one of the greatest, you know, American born Italian chefs in the United States. The worst expediter <laughs> on planet Earth. And he will admit it. He will fully, fully admit it. He's like, if I'm on Expo, he's like, it's a huge fucking problem. Like, you know, it's just like some people, they just, that's not their, their sweet spot there. You know what I mean? They can't hold the cool and they lose. Like, Leanne was like, absolutely losing it it was like oh man and it's like when she held up the paper and just goes is is this is this confusion Confusion. crumble 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 (laughs) 
<laughs> and like, I, I just like, oh you, know, you start having like your line cook nightmares over again, where you're just like, you're watching the chef on the other side of the pass from you go down in flames. And you're going to be, and you're like, this is going to be the worst fucking night of our lives. Yes. Yes. And then, uh, and then Steph takes over and you know, that might've been a very critical moment in the night. Huge moment of the night right there that she had enough foresight to take over. And also like malarkey on the floor was a really, really good call. And Greg being smart enough to make that call and him being like, you watch it and just the little shit he's doing. You're like, yeah, you know what I mean? And it's like, also it's he's like, a performer. He's a performer. Tons of people know who he is. He has huge, huge name recognition. So no one's going to make all those people happy is seeing someone in the front of the house who like, oh, this is Top Chef All-Stars, right? So you put somebody super recognizable out there that all the people who come in the door are going to be like, oh, this is so great. Brian Malarkey just poured my wine. You know, like he was on every commercial for last season of Top Chef where, you know, he's making that pecan bourbon chicken or whatever. So it's like take that guy's face, shove it out in front. And he does a great job. And you see him work in the judges' table. And I think, like, one of, like, the smoothest things he does. So they're waiting for the fish. It's taking a long time. Padma mentioned, she goes, you know, hey, we've already been here for 55 minutes. He comes out to the table, and he does table maintenance. He sends half the order, gets it going. And then he does a couple things on the table that aren't necessarily mess- that aren't necessary totally, but it makes it look like they are necessary to get ready for the fish to be put on the table. Like he rearranges some silverware, moves some things around and gets the table like more set for the food to come out as like, it makes it look like part of the process. This is all control. Well, it's it's, yeah. it's theatrical, it's right? Like it, it, there's and some- it's just yeah. like, it's thought out and you can just tell this is a guy who's just done this a million times. Uh, do you subscribe to the theory and Tom might have a stat here. That the team that gets the judges second in restaurant wars is at a decided disadvantage. You know, I don't know. I feel like, you know, we got them first, which I was happy because I didn't have to wait. But I also, like, hadn't figured anything out yet. And, you know, it seemed like for this one they had, like, actual servers, which was nice, where we just had, like, a bunch of people they found in Colorado. Uh, and, I, yeah, it, it's hard to tell. I felt like it was kind of an advantage having them first and just getting yep. it done. But that's I always want to go first. Guess what? The stats back you up, Joe. Stats say of the 16 teams who served the judges first, 11 won restaurant wars. So two things we know about this. You want to you wanna choose second in the draft and you want to serve first in the, in the service. You know what? To back that up, this was a thing I heard when we were on the show that backs that up is that a lot of people say it's harder having the judges second because you can't kick your first turn out of there because they're all waiting to see the judges. They all want to get a glimpse of Tom and Padma and the whole crew. And so they have to have, you know. That happened on this episode, didn't it? uh, Where it's like everybody camps out because they want to see them walk in, right? So it's like, and in normal, you don't know that. When you're going in blind, when you're going to first season. But these people have all been through this before like you know it's kind of one of those things it's like maybe you should have a little bit of game playing for that's interesting yeah so so karen karen just of all the things it was it was like out of an snl skit what karen was going through in this episode she spilled the red wine on the table drops the canapé like (laughs) i thought yakety sax was playing in the background 
I think if Kevin wouldn't have fallen on the sword, she there, there was no way she wasn't going home. She did two dishes that were, I mean, not even really dishes. They were one was a side, one was a condiment, um, and the side wasn't good. And she was just kind of like, you know, like, oh well, that was their fault. They cooked it, and then the front of the house was super, super, you know, clunky. Um, so I, I was really surprised by that because again, like, she that's a James Beard award winning chef right there. Hey, listener, it's your favorite Butcher Turn podcast producer, May, is here to talk to you about Butcher Box. A not-so-wise man once said, it's not that hard, just chop, chop. Who knew that he was talking about pork chops from Butcher Box? It's not that hard. It's easy to get high-quality meat and seafood you can trust, delivered right to your doorstep, free shipping always, a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You get exactly what you need, premium ingredients for your meals to feed your family. I know how it is. You go to the grocery store. You're stressed. You got a lot of food to get. And then you got to wait in line at the butcher counter. Maybe your butcher is a tall man with an attitude. I don't know. I've never experienced that, but maybe it happened to you. That's why I love Butcher Box. You've always got meat in the freezer or in the fridge. You're ready to cook at any time, and you're not going to find such high quality at such low prices anywhere else. So sign up for Butcher Box today by going to butcherbox.com slash dings, D-I-N-G-S, and use code dings at checkout to enjoy your choice of bone-in chicken thighs, top sirloins, or salmon in every box for an entire year, plus $20 off. Again, that is butcherbox.com slash dings, and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S. Chop, chop! We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So on that team, though, I guess maybe Voltaggio, Kevin... If you if you were if you were on Team Gillespie and you had to assign you're you're the GM and you had to put them into roles, would you put Voltaggio front of house, Kevin? Uh, I mean, you think Karen, who's open, and by the way, just got a beer nomination for her newer restaurant on, uh, I believe, Thursday. Uh, Gregory also got a beer nomination on Thursday. Yep. Uh, who, Joe, who else am I missing? Anyone else on the show get it this year? Not uh, from this season. Well, this season, I don't think so right. carrie baird uh from my season got I saw that. So that was that was awesome we we're all super pumped about that yeah but um i don't know tom i mean i think on on balance she has a lot of experience in restaurants she has that as i always joke she's the musical theater major i mean there's a gregariousness there oh yeah um yeah. i mean she looks like someone who's going to show you a good time and um i think there's generally good energy there i i don't i, I don't know um you know, I think maybe that that was the right choice, is Karen. But yeah, she's such a strong chef, though. I would just have a really hard time pulling her out of the kitchen mm. and just being like, "This is the person I'm going to pull out, and put on the floor." And it's also it's like the other two people in that kitchen. And I again, I'm going to go back to this with like the Milwaukee example are just way more face recognition. You know, Melissa King was on a national ad campaign for Levi's. Like she's LA based. This is her hometown. This is her mm. home crowd. Put her out there. People are gonna freak out. You know what I mean? She's. Just don't think she has the personality for that. Oh, man. and also she's, like, she's cooking her ass off. 
everyone is cooking their ass. Yeah, you're right. You got a bunch. You have so many talented chefs, right? So it's like you got to send somebody out there who's going to sell the dream. And I think you know, I I, I don't know. It's Karen was an interesting choice. And I said again, you know, picking the teams for me, I just pick it way different because it's like, well, I'm going to go out there and take the front of the house to make sure that shit doesn't happen because I know I'll be able to handle it. I want to talk about a moment on the show that I thought was brilliant was it it seemed like they fell ass backwards into this, but it actually was awesome. An awesome move when they were a little bit behind on the fish. Gregory's like, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm going to take it out. I'm going to take it out to, to the judge's table. I'm going to take it out to their, their table. And I was like, this is it. This is going to be the moment that he wins the wins the episode, yep. the competition, because the fact that he brings out that fish, just the the presentation of Gregory walking out, he sprints out. He's probably he's probably hyperventilating under his 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 face there, just like mm-hmm. he sprints out. He walks casually over, calmly, and puts down this beautiful red snapper onto the onto the table, and then gets to you know listen to them. Hey, did you write this beautiful essay on, on the on the on the menu? Oh, th- tell me more about this dish. Why didn't you do the oxtail? And he just bam, 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 just nailed it. Nailed it. And I, I was like, man, he's gonna win the episode just on that mistake of of being late to bringing out the fish. It actually worked to his advantage. I also thought the story on the menu was a really really good play because it's like you know. You watch, like, they spend so much time trying to explain the concept, why they're doing it, what's going on. You know, these people coming in don't necessarily know who they are or what it is. And I was like, man, that just cut out, like, 50% of the bullshit of your day. It's like writing on the menu why it's named the way it is, why, you know, you're cooking that food. And I thought that was really, really smart. And, yeah, and then when he came out with the fish, that was like, uh, you know, in time dining, they always called it being the duck. Um where it's like you're cruising right along the top of the water, but underneath, you know, your legs are going absolutely apeshit. Oh, I love that. I like that too. <laughs> That's great, Kevin. So when you when you look at um, you look at what are the things that went wrong for Kevin? I, where do you start? I mean, yeah. No, go ahead, Joe. I mean, I, too many uh, like edit. Or you know what? Let's do this, Joe. Edit the menu. You've got Kevin. Um, you're a Yoda. He is Luke. The menu is – he's got it on a little uh, legal pad. This is the menu. This is what I want to do tomorrow. What do you tell him? I think, one, it's like let's get rid of a couple of these sides and maybe let's make one, you know, like a mid-course. And it's also – it's like the flow of service where it seemed like, you know, putting out all those canapes and individual, individual plates, you know, and I know the judges made this point, but it's like – because the bigger thing about that to me is if you put those down on individual plates, now you need to clear six plates and six sets of silverware yeah. before we go into next course. So I would have done it as like, hey, let's consult. We're going to do this family style fine. Or we have to, you know, cut this down a little bit. So it's like, cool, canapes hit. And before we hit clear canapes, let's hit them with the second course of like, you know, whatever our relishes and some veggies and stuff like that while they're waiting for country captain so that we can still leave them same plate, same silver, just pull the big trays from the canapes and then, you know, like flow into it a little bit more naturally. Um, but it seemed like he was throwing some stuff on there. Like, yeah, the, the shrimp and grits, like that's a course, like that should have came before the country captain or not at all. 
Um, so that would have been one for me where it's like, I would be like, yeah, we can't serve this at the same time. Just logistically, it's a nightmare, but also, you know, like this is a course, like we should, you know, if we want to do this, let's do it after canapes before the country captain, yeah. it'll be, you know, a four course dinner or whatever. Um, so I think that's where I would have went with it right away. And I think his teammates just, you know, again, because it's one, and then, you know, to, to Kevin, to your point, because it's one person concept and it's not everybody's working together concept, there's really not those true battles to be like, no, 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 no. We need nine dishes. No, we need 12. So it's kind of like, you know, you, you didn't get that as much. They kind of just rolled with it. Yeah, there was that gamesmanship of just like, yep, uh, Kevin, we'll, we'll take your orders here. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I was watching your episode this morning and Bruce Kalman said something brilliant that I think is like should be put on a banner for, for every restaurant war team in, in the future. And, and he said, what you want to do are the dishes that are most intensive in prep and less intensive in execution. Yeah. Good agree, boy. Yeah, I mean, you, so you because you you're going to be in the soup. You want to be able just to fire stuff that just doesn't require as much vigilance, as much time, as much intricacy, as much assembly, right? I mean, that's just you know you want to do that. You want to get your, your your work done early, right? And it's like the more stuff you put out too, and I think the judges make the point. It's like the more things there are for you to be judged on. So it's like. There's, there's no extra credit. There's not going to give you more points that carry over to a next round for making extra dishes. Yeah. So it's like you don't want to do the bare minimum, but you want to do the maximum that you could execute at the highest level. Right. It's, it's, like, it's like the old haberdashery joke. Like I'm losing money on every sale, but I'm making it up in volume. Right. I mean you can, you can <laughs> only get screwed on – You know, if you don't have mushrooms that – your front of the house can't really oversee um, and can't shepherd from from idea to fruition. Like you're not going to win because of those mushrooms. You're only going to lose. Right. What dish? And I mean, you have to think about it when it's heads up like that. You got to look across the aisle to that other team and you go, what dish is this mushrooms going to beat? <laughs> yeah. Like who's this, who's this going to D up over there? Like nobody, yeah. it can't score on anybody and it doesn't play defense. It's just fucking, why do we have it? Yes. Here. Like yeah. we, it's gotta go. You know what I mean? Like, and by the way, if you do your homework, Tom, uh, Calicchio's favorite, uh, food in the world is mushrooms. Yep. Yes. So don't fuck that up. <laughs> right. He cooked me some of the best mushrooms I've ever had in my life. And, the the night before the finale dinner when him and him and Graham cooked for us, he cooked morels and like a burblanc, which I've I've taken that technique from him and done it a bunch of times now, and it was like wildly delicious. Oh, that's amazing! I um. Oh, by the way, uh, Calicchio was on Fresh Air with Terry Gross on Thursday, just a couple days ago, mm. uh, talking about the future of the restaurant business, um, which I, we kind of want to pick your brain about. I mean, I feel like it's a uh, you know I, I don't want to be a downer on this podcast, but I just think it's a it's for for the for anybody who loves restaurants, it's a really just kind of scary time and depressing time. And I want to hear your sort of, I mean, what, what you're going through and you're, what you're watching your colleagues and your friends and your city go through. Yeah. I mean, well, for me, it's, it's, it's different because we're in the process of trying to open a restaurant right now. Um, so we were supposed to start construction a little over a month ago and then, you know, this all came down. So now we're just in a holding pattern because we don't know what's going to happen. They might make us, redo our floor plan. They might make us change our occupancy. You know, we don't know what the rules, the new rules going forward are going to be. So it's kind of like 
we had to take all our plans. Like we'd already passed like permitting for the city, everything like ready to go and say, okay, well, we just got to sit here and wait until somebody says, okay, these are the new rules on what you can do. Because if we have to go back and change it after we're already open, it's going to, you know, that'll sink us. Um, so it's, it's, you know, we're really fortunate in that, you know, I didn't have an open restaurant, so I didn't have to lay anyone off. I didn't have to furlough anyone. I'm not paying, you know, rent on a beautiful restaurant that's built out and ready and done, um, that I can't use. Um, but it's just, you know, it's kind of one of those things where this thing now, um, two years into the process of trying to get this restaurant open and it's kind of, we have a floating finish line, um, which Mm -hmm. is always the case with openings, but this is uh, a particularly, you know, strange one. Um, So we really just, you know, they told us in Illinois that they think the earliest restaurants are going to open again, really to the public is June 26th. Um, So, you know, we don't even really have a date where we're going to start construction. So that's kind of, it's weird and it's difficult for us, but I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have really patient partners who are like, Hey, we're not going to open it till it's right. We got one shot at this. Um, whereas, you said that Stephanie Izard, who was on this episode, she's, she's trying to open up a restaurant, uh, this weekend. And, uh, well, she went back, they're doing like grocery pickup from her restaurants. Cause okay. a lot of restaurants went back in Chicago and they're just trying to figure out, I think, you know, what it feels like from talking to most of my friends is people are trying, like, everyone's kind of just like, yeah, we can't make money right now, but maybe if we don't burn through all our reserves, like, maybe we'll make it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, it's scary. It's, you know, it's most of my friends are in the restaurant industry. So it's like when, you know, 90% of your friends all lost their job overnight, it, it, it's a really wild and scary feeling. And this is very much, you know, one of those communities um, where it's very much who we are. It's very much how we identify is ourselves and our restaurants and what we do. And, um, it's, it's very much like a safe place for us. And, you know, a place where a lot of us first found comfort, um, and, and, you know, fit in. So it's like, when you took this away from us, it's like, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like a bunch of lost souls out there right now. And we're all just like really scared and nervous about what's to come because we don't know when we get to go back to work. Well, tell people what restaurant it, it is that you're uh, you're working at because I um, I didn't even know you guys were doing construction at Spiaggia. No, so I, I left Spiaggia and I'm I'm doing construction on my my own restaurant. So I'm opening. Well, we were supposed to open um, this summer, um, but we're opening a Croatian Italian restaurant, Fulton Market, um, at Fulton and Sagamon. Oh wow! So so right now, you know, we're really really hoping that we can open in 2020. That would be. You know, that's the point where we're at. We're like, man, if we could, if we could get this open this year, that would be, that would be a huge win for us. Are you just going to have Tony Kukoc's jersey in the, in the front there? Yeah. 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 I'm just going to have Tony Kukoc in the front. Then. <laughs> He's going to run. Tony's going to run front of the house. Right. right. I'm going to kakusei, Tony. Um, have, you been wa- have you been watching the Jordan doc? Oh yeah. Oh my God. It's, it's everything, man. It's uh. It's just wild. Like, you know, you just I feel like nobody plays a game like that right now and nobody can. You know what I mean? Nobody could get away with the shit they were doing. But it's I, I love it, you know, and obviously all Chicagoans absolutely love it. I know. 
Man, nothing Chicago loves more than Chicago. Chicago. No, we're the, we're the biggest homers ever. You know what I mean? And it's like when you compare it to other big cities, it's like because it's like you go to New York and there's so many people who live in New York where I feel like, you know, when you're Manhattan, Brooklyn, whatever, where it's like you don't have like an overwhelming from New York population. Maybe they've lived there for a long time. They consider themselves New Yorkers. Yeah. But like I feel like it's not like 90% of the people in this neighborhood grew up Yankees fans because they live here, Giants fans, uh, you know, and I think LA is similar in that regard where it's like, you come to Chicago, it's like, you know, if you knock on all the doors in my neighborhood, it's like these people are, there's like 97.9% Bears fans within, you know, four square miles of my house um, and Bulls fans and Hawks fans and, you know, a split of Cubs and Sox fans. But it's like, that's like, I think that in, for being such a big, huge city, like that's the thing I love about it. It's just like, we are massive homers. And that was like the most fun when I was on Top Chef. It was like, I felt like everybody here was like, well, we're going for the Chicago guy. And so it's like, you go to the grocery store or something. And I was like, this was like the first, I felt like I was like living in a small town on Friday night lights. Cause you'd be like, you're like walking out. Everybody would be like, hey, we're rooting for you. Like, yeah, bring it home. You know, like yelling <laughs> shit to me. And I was like, this is the coolest. <laughs> I just remember going out in Chicago. This was like 10, 12 years ago. I, I went out to like a bar in Boys Town. And, you know, I'm just like, you know, you're making conversation. I mean, it, that's what you're there to do. And I just want to think that it was like the only place where other than like San Francisco, who has a really negative uh, perception of Los Angeles. I just remember like, OK, where are you from? Uh, yeah, I live in Los Angeles. Oh, my God. How do you live there? It's so shallow. I don't you know, it's, <laughs> it's just like, and I, I, like I've been to Chicago like twice in those social situations. And every time I just get like dragged for being from Los Angeles. Um, yeah. But it's like and Chicagoans love them some Chicago. It, it's, it's charming. I mean. It's like no one else. We're we're shameless with it. I'd like to think we got better and we're more accepting from, you know, of other people from other cities now. But, um, you know, it's still, it's very much of like, we're Chicago and like, you know, we're the fucking best, obviously. Um, hey, uh, you, to, to just find, uh, figure out where we go from here on Top Chef, Last Chance Kitchen, Kevin Gillespie goes to Last Chance Kitchen and wins. You won Last Chance Kitchen. Do you think he has the DNA to come out of Last Chance Kitchen here? I think he's got a really good shot because he has a really um, like wide kind of skill set. And he just like in Last Chance Kitchen, it's just like you're just banging on a bunch of really delicious food. Um, and so, I mean, I think he, you know, and, and it's such a mental thing because it's like once you get kicked off, you know, you have this kind of it's this weird feeling of like, you got kicked off for a quick fire. Right. You have a weird feeling of like relief though. Like after you get over, you're like, oh, this sucks. This shitty blah, blah, blah. But then you're like, well, it's all good. You know what I mean? Like now I'm done with this. Now I don't have to go to bed in a bunk bed every night worried about if I'm going to get sent home tomorrow or when my day is going to be or when my time's up on this. You're like, okay, my time's up. I'm done. Cool. I never have to worry about this ever again if I don't want to. Then yeah, they put you in Last Chance Kitchen, and you're kind of like, holy shit, do I really want to go back into that meat grinder? Do I really want to go back to being stressed out of my mind every day? Do I really want to do all these things? So you have to really be in a headspace of like, I am going to get there. And when I get there, I'm going to be ready for there, and we're going to go, and we're going to run. And like, I still have fight. I still have gas left in the tank. Um, and it's kind of a hard, hard place to mentally talk yourself back into. Wait, can I, can you reveal this? 
are you, were you asked to come back on this all-star season? Were you wanting to come back on this all-star season? No, because I won. So they don't do anybody oh, yeah. won for, question. for all-stars. So, um, we, you know, me and Stephanie were joking. We go, that's the best part about winning is you never have to go back. <laughs> Unless you're going as a, as a judge, which is kind of right, cool. Right, which is, which is great. You know what I mean? They don't make the judges sleep on bunk beds. They're putting them up in hotels, like, and they get to keep their cell phones. Right. Um, that, that's Tom and I's dream is like, if we just do this podcast long enough, at some point there will be some dumb challenge where they have to feed like schlubby sports writers who like a certain kind of food in the media room <laughs> at some shitty arena. And like we get to go and be the quick fire judges for a uh, some dumb sports writer uh, challenge or quick fire. I mean, you guys are getting pretty close. You know what I mean? I feel like you have, Ooh. you know, doing, doing restaurant wars and stuff like that. I mean, I feel like we're working toward it. You're working towards it for sure. Yeah, you just need like you know them to do like Top Chef Connecticut next year at like ESPN headquarters or something. Uh, Tyler Anderson would be on that show for sure. I love right. Tyler. He, he's the king of Connecticut at this point. Oh my god, he is. He is, and it's like the funniest thing too because it's like you know what at least as a Midwesterner like growing up, what I imagine as a Connecticut person being, and then like what Tyler is is like hysterical to me. Right. You expect it to be like a, a character in a John Cheever novel, and instead it's this guy. Right. It's, it's uh, this guy from Long Beach with, you know, destiny tattooed across his belly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did when not that know doesn't that. scream Connecticut to you? Sure. Yeah. Uh, me and my Vineyard Vines pullover and, uh, and khaki shorts. Yes. That is, that is more, very much more Connecticut than Tyler Anderson. Um, Joe, you, you texted to me that you were watching this season and you were, one of the things you noticed that these all-stars coming back to the show, it seemed like they know how to play in front of the camera. And there's just a different vibe when you're an all-star cast versus you. this is your maiden voyage on Top Chef. And you don't know how to do the, the camera confessionals. And you're just – it's not a performance so much as it is like an honest uh, you know, uh, session. So what was it like watching all-stars this season having been through Top Chef? Well, I think it's it's kind of like – you know, just because they've all done it before and varying regards, some of them have been in there several times. Some of them really know the inner workings of it. Um, so they're very much, when they go into those confessionals, they know what they're going to say. It's like they've been prepped. They're ready. They're ready in front of the camera. Um, and they're careful. They know everything they can say. You know, it's, it's, it's like, I feel like it's almost like being brought into an interrogation. And it's like, if you've seen somebody like, you know, the first time, like, you got, pulled in by the cops for doing something stupid with your friends. And then you have, you know, the, the two friends who are just freaking the fuck out. And they're like, Oh no, no, we just got to tell them everything. And like, blah, blah, blah. it's like, dude, just fucking chill. Just like sit here. And it's like, <laughs> wait, fine. is that, do you have experience in this job? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's, it, it happens. And so these guys, you know, they've all been pulled in before. So they know the deal. They know they really can't hurt you. They know they don't have anything. So they sit there very calm and they're very much like they have, you know, a story to tell and a thing to do where it's like the new kids who go in there is the best part of it because you don't have anyone to talk to, right? The only people you have to talk to in a normal season are all these people you don't know who's your competition. So you don't know how much to open up to them. So then all of a sudden they lock you in a room with a producer who really seems like your friend and they really care about you and they just really want to know how you're doing. And then you unload 
in these rooms with all this crazy shit. And then it's played on TV nationally for everyone to see much later. And you're like, well, what the fuck? I didn't know they were going to use that. And that's like the best stuff, right? Well, none of these people are going to do that. They're just not going to make those missteps. So I think you miss a little bit of like that kind of grunginess of like, you know, almost college to MBA-ness. Right. I mean, I have to say, I have a little bit of a conflict this season. I mean, look, I always love Top Chef. I'm, I'm, I'm a fanboy, but I am kind of balancing the refinement and the quality of the cooking is just blowing me away this season. Yeah. But I do miss like the idea that there's just more at stake, that it's, you know, the, the fact that they are, that generally speaking, most seasons, they are, they're unknowns. This is their big right. thing. And, you know, as you say, it's kind of malarkey and almost a perfect encapsulation of it. Like this guy's worth more than the judges. And, right. <laughs> you know, like like Melissa, win or lose, is just, I mean, she's already, you know, there. I mean, Voltaggio is Voltaggio. It's like there are very few of the contestants for whom, uh, you know, that has as much at stake or there's as much elasticity and outcome as it is for a first timer who's coming on who, you know, ran a little cafe and, you know, pick your midsize city. Right. And I think that's, you know, you know, it's kind of like, I think the normal seasons, they're very much like NCAA tournament where it's like, you know, like, yeah, you have some people like for our season coming in, you know, you have like, like Tyler coming in with beard nominations and some really big names like coming in on there. But it's like, you also, you know, you have some Bucknells and some, you know, Dayton's that are, it's like, well, are they going to be good? Are they going to make a run where it's like these all-star seasons look way more where it's like NBA playoffs where you're just like, yeah, of course, Brian Voltaggio is going to be really good. And of course, you know, like Melissa King isn't going to make mistakes. Um, and they're both wildly entertaining, but it's just a, a different belt, a different levels for me. You didn't win your first episode or first challenge until Restaurant Wars. I want uh, for elimination challenges. Yeah, I is individual. I'm looking yeah. at your Wikipedia right now. Yeah, don't, don't don't fuck with Tom. Like he's got he's, he's got the record. He was my episode team eight. Won, you my won. team won the Olympics, but I didn't win it personally. Okay, so you were a high. Yeah. Did Joe did, uh, Mustache Joe win that one? Yeah. Episode seven. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I guess it is, it just goes to show that even if you don't have any wins coming in this late in the game, maybe it's different for a top chef, um, all-star season, but, um, my favorite's got to be Gregory going forward. Gregory has four wins this season. He's a machine. He's got the right temperament. He, um, you know, you can see when he's the executive chef on this episode that he wants to taste the food. He also has good candor. He's got that bedside manner that you need. Uh, and he, he is not fucking going home for no raw fish. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, Melissa had a had a tough as as Kevin said she was just kind of absent this episode. Um, now I, I just want to end on this. Kevin Gillespie's speech at the end. What are you? What are your guys' thoughts, or his move there at the end? I respect it. I mean, you know what I mean. It's he knew he went out. He knew they didn't execute. It's like really. It's like most likely he was probably going home anyways. So it's like thought it might have been Karen. Thought it might have been Karen. It would have been close. It would have been close. But I think chips are down, and he put Karen in that role too as executive chef, as his restaurant. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, 
it would have just all roads would have ended up with him. And I think it would have been him. And so he got to go out on his own accord. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. I, I, I respect it. I think you always take your chance. You never know. Yeah. But again, I, again, it's all starts. It's not a regular season. In a regular season, nobody's pulling that move. You're, you're like, I'm going to let this go to the judges. And like, we'll see what the court has to say. Like, we might be walking out of here. <laughs> Right. I also think that the classy chef is the new combative chef, Tom. Like everyone's trying to be classy. It, it classy's in on, on the top. The, the falling on your sword is sort of the, you know, there, there are fewer Claudettes and, you know, sort of uh, early chef, chef gins and, and they're more of these sort of the, the, these, these noble martyrs. I, I think the, the noble <laughs> martyr on top chef is sort of in right now. You know, I think there's a little bit of gamesmanship here. Because Kevin went to Last Chance Kitchen and maybe because he had such a heartfelt, you know, my I was raised to to never throw anyone on a, under the bus and to own all mistakes. I kind of felt like he was playing it up a bit, turning it up a little bit on the volume there because he knew he was going to go to Last Chance Kitchen. And that's a pure play to Tom Colicchio is like I only need to wow Tom Colicchio and I feel like falling on your sword there might gain him some sympathy votes later on and be like, you know what, that guy deserves to get back because not only was he awesome, but he was so noble and he did the right thing to do. And I just feel like it was a little bit of gamesmanship there, a little bit of a long play. If, if I did not had not cooked for Tom, I would agree with you on that, but I can guarantee you Tom does not give a shit. <laughs> he is like a hundred percent just like no who's the best today who's the best in this dish right now like you okay. you just tell he is like man like and, and you gotta give it to him because that's got to be super hard it would be very hard for me not to get caught up in like oh what a good guy let's let this guy back you know <laughs> but you know like tom is like very much takes it super seriously it is just like dish to dish like you know um and and i okay. I, I respect that about it um, Fine, Joe Flam. This was an absolute pleasure. Uh, this so was much a, fun, guys. A great coup for us. Tom, any closing thoughts? Uh, Kevin, uh, you're you're great. Kevin Gillespie just went down. Uh, I think we might have a Joe Flam here again. Is is coming out of Last Chance Kitchen? Who are, who are your guys' picks to win this season? My pick, my pick, obviously, my number one pick was Gregory Gordet. And uh, who I would have taken first, but I ended up taking Kevin and Nini. I, I just I, I'm sort of a Nini fanboy. I, I always thought that there's just the upside there is outrageously high. Uh, in retrospect, obviously, you know the pick didn't work out for me, but uh, I, I still think Gregory. I just he plays error free ball. Like I, I just think yeah. it. I just think it's he, his season. When I saw the lineup at the beginning of the year, he was he was in my top five of like before knowing anything of like I was like I thought he is a really tough competitor. Yeah. Um, and he's kind of unflappable too, which I think is a really great quality. Um, he doesn't second guess himself. There's just, co- it's a quiet confidence is what you need to win. Yeah. Yeah. And he's number one on the point fantasy scoring system, Joe. So he's got 57 points and the next highest on the board is Melissa at 44. Um, so he's just, he's just crushing it. And, uh, so Kevin, you have 108 points. I have 149 right now. I got to say Gregory's the the favorite. I mean, I had, I had Eric Adjapong, Brian Voltaggio, Melissa King, Jen Carroll, Leanne Wong, Jamie Lynch, and Lisa Fernandez. And Kevin, uh, Kevin Gillespie, Nina, Nini Wynn, 
Karen Akunowitz, Joe Sasto, Stephanie Simar, Angela Sosa, and Brian Malarkey, the last pick. Oh, no, at least it was the last pick. But Brian Malarkey, I'm getting value great value, there. Kevin. Yeah, I'm getting value great there. Value. I'm getting value. Huge value pick there. Although next week seems very foreboding for your boy Malarkey. Yeah. Um, <laughs> who, I'm, I, by the way, I've been telling Tom, I've really warmed to him. I kind of, I've gone from being. I kind of have to. I really, like, I it just, it, it's, uh, it's good shtick, and he kind of knows it, and he's winking at you and and yeah. i kind of become a fan of the whole thing i was kind of yeah i was kind of like get rough on him in the first few episodes and then I, i've kind of like especially after restaurant wars i'm just like this guy is such a character and like he's probably kind of fun you know what i mean it's like what i think i was like this guy's like probably kind of a riot to be around like yeah. you know to have a few beers with and just like listen to him tell ridiculous stories like on his probably awesome boat hundred and one million dollars that's good for him he's he's welcoming you into a haitian restaurant with a boater's hat brian malarkey's face enjoy your haitian experience and i'm just like oh my god incredible i will say my my top five before the season when me when when i found out everybody who was going me and tony montuano were, were kind of you know Say who we thought, and I think my top five was Sesto was in my top five. Greg, oh, you're so biased. Yeah, okay. <sighs> yeah, obviously, that was my guy, my guy Joe. Um, Sasto, Greg, Melissa, Kevin Galepsi, and I think Brian Voltaggio was my fifth. Yeah, it makes mm. sense. That was that's, that was like my top five going into whatever. That's pretty much. That was pretty close to what we had. Um, Sasto. Oh, man. That was a tough one. He just you – know, this is the thing about that, just just as my final thought. One, it's like they put Joe in like – put him outside over the wood fire, and he listened to Brian Malarkey, and Brian Malarkey just walked him right off a cliff in that Oh, one. he did. He with the, right with the pizza, the, the flatbread with the uh, uni. Yeah. Don't get me on my flatbread rant again, but yeah. Just, just walked right off the cliff on that one. So yeah. it was hard coming around to Malarkey after that. After, you know, oh. seeing, him, seeing him walk my boy Joe behind the shed and put one in his head. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> All right, You're Fl- the best, Flam. Flam, you are next, the best. Time we, next time we do this, uh, next season, we're going to have to bring you back on. And uh, you're, you're the best. Thank you so much Shout for coming out. This was so much fun, guys. Thank you for having yeah. me. This is a blast. Um, hopefully, I'll see you both at the All-Star Game next year. Hopefully. Uh, For Tom Haberstow, this is Kevin Arnovitz, and this is Pack Your Knives. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. 
Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com.